you're listening to the Locked In Podcast. Here's your host, Algernon Cash. I'm Algernon Cash, and you're locked in. Uh, Ukraine is the second largest country by area in Europe um, after Russia, uh, with a population of 43 million people. Um, Ukraine is the eighth most populous country in Europe. Um, Ukraine is a developing democracy and routinely seeks closer economic, political, and military ties with the United States. And on February the 24th of 2022, Russia began a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, um, the largest military attack on a sovereign state in Europe since World War II. Um, And the escalation is rooted um, in Russian annex in Crimea in 2014. I wanted to get my good friend, John Hood, who is an author, historian, um, conservative um, op-ed writer, as well as the president of the John William Polk Foundation. Wanted to get John to lock in with me to talk about the um, Ukrainian invasion. John, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Algernon. I'm not sure the world is doing fine, but uh, we'll, we'll muddle our way through it. We, we, we will. I, I guess to just jump right into it, John, you heard me at the outset of my comments say that the current escalation is rooted in Russia annexing Crimea in, in 2014. You know, he, here we are, you know, eight years later, and we're, we could be on the brink of another world war. You know, did we, in your opinion, did we fail to deal with President Putin effectively after the previous invasion? I think we did. I think that we, the the uh, American system of alliances that includes NATO and others failed to take seriously the possibility of a essentially a czarist Russia trying to recover more and more of its power and territory. I see some people uh, calling Vladimir Putin a communist. Uh, He was in his youth when he was a KGB agent it's a fundamental misreading to sort of apply ideological Marxian sort of language from years ago to what's happening. This is really imperialist Russian designs on areas that the that Putin, at least, and the cadre of kooks that surround him believe is naturally the purview and the territory of Russia. Uh, I'm no expert on Ukraine and Belarusia and Russian history, but I've read enough about it and talked to real experts to know that if you look at a map of Europe, uh, there is a lot of dispute. There, there's been disputes over hundreds of years about which great power, if any, should control various aspects of Western and Central Europe. But compared to Eastern Europe, <laughs> Western Europe is a, a fairly stable idea. I mean, basically, we sort of know what France means. We know what Britain means, though that's still in some dispute in Ireland. We have some idea now of what Germany means, but it used to mean something very much more expansive that encompassed German-speaking people far away from what is now Germany. But when you look into things like Ukraine, uh, Moldova, uh, Poland, Lithuania, Belarusia, Russia, uh, these these territories of Europe that we see on the map today had very different boundaries in the past. And Putin is arguing that it was really Lenin. It, he, it, the reason why he's not a communist is actually because he, he really hates Vladimir Lenin. 
He thinks Lenin started the trouble. So it doesn't start in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. That's just him trying to repair historical damage. He thinks the damage began after the communist revolution when the new dictator Lenin divided the old Russian empire into a series of quote republics, Soviet republics, in order to treat uh, the empire as a union of Soviet socialist republics. It was kind of a fiction according to Putin. And on this, by the way, he's sort of right. I mean, some of this was invented for communist reasons uh, to make it look like it was a United States kind of entity when it really was an empire. So he's arguing that places like not just not just the Crimean Peninsula, but other parts, particularly of eastern Ukraine, are really uh, Russian. Uh, And he's also denying that there is a firm borderline between being a Russian and being a Ukrainian in the first place. Uh, That that the Kievan Rus, which was the one of the original states from which modern day Russia and Belarus and Ukraine all derive from, the Kievan Rus was based around that city of Kiev. The Rus uh, was a people that has been variously described as originally Swedish or a mixture of Swedes and Swedes and Slavs or other groups. And so if you go back in time far enough, you will find areas of current Ukraine that used to be part of Lithuania, they used to be part of Poland, they used to be part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so maybe Hungary would have a claim to it. They used to be Russian. And what hmm. Putin is saying is, well, I don't want to go back that far. I just want to go back to the point where Russia's in charge. And so he's opening that. The, the reason I start out with such a long explanation is Putin is not, strictly speaking, talking about some cost-benefit analysis. Russia will be better off over the next two years if he takes this military action. He is living in a fantasy world of the past. It is a fantasy world that he has chosen to live in. There are other fantasy worlds you could choose to live in. And the reason why Europe has unified in such a kind of surprising, kind of amazing way to this incursion by Russia into Ukraine is that lots of Eastern and Central Europe can't stand up to constant uh, sort of backward looking revisionism. In other words, this opens up a can of worms uh, for lots of countries that exist today. And, you know, the last time we saw this was in the former Yugoslavia, when it broke up in the early 90s into these warring states, constituent elements that have been knitted together to form so-called Yugoslavia, which wasn't a real thing. It was just sort of an invention of, of some diplomats after World War I. And people realize, you know, you can make an argument that Serbia and Bosnia, Herzegovina and Croatia and Slovenia and Macedonia should all be different countries, which is what has happened. But boy, was it a mess because there were Bosnians living in Serbia. There were Serbians living in Bosnia. There were Croats living in in Bosnia, et cetera. And that's what's happened here with Russia and Ukraine. There, of course, are Russian speakers who live in Ukraine. I don't see any evidence that most of them wanted Putin to start a war to supposedly reunify them with their mother country. But there certainly are ethnic minorities, linguistic minorities in Ukraine and in Russia and in Belarus and in Poland and in Hungary and in Lithuania, et cetera, et cetera. So part of the reaction is just the outrage of the, the what he's doing and the targeting of civilians because his military incursion has not gone according to plan. But part of it is this broader sense that the current set of states that we have not just in Europe, but around the world, is somewhat arbitrary. It is. 
You can certainly see that in Africa, you know, different countries that were drawn on the map by imperial powers that had very little to do with the existing ethnic groups and, and states in Africa. Okay, so there's a problem with borders. They're somewhat arbitrary, but what's worse is tearing them up. What's worse is revising them later, saying, well, never mind, let's go back to the map as it was in, in, in 1914, because yeah. it is a rational thing for someone else to say, why are you stopping in 1914? Why don't we go back to 1895? And this will go on and on and on. So I, I have been uh, really struck by Algernon, two things about this. One of them is this sort of living in the past thing, which everybody does to some extent, but Putin has invented this fantasy story that he is the new czar Vladimir I who has re is rebuilding this Russian empire that will be great again. And it, it is a fantasy. It is not connected to reality. He can't dominate and control Ukraine for years to come. He just doesn't have the resources to do it. So he's invented this yeah. fantasy, but now we're all living in the nightmare version of it. And the other is the, re the rediscovery of real heroism. In the in the in the body of Volodymyr Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, it's hard for me to say. Uh, he is kind of out of a movie, right? And and what's weird about it is, he really became president because he was an actor who played a character on television where a teacher becomes president. So, so this is someone who became president because he became a star of a TV show about an average person becoming president, which he couldn't hardly script, but it's real. And now instead of running away, he is this symbolic uh, figure, not just for Ukraine, but for Europeans generally. Now, all of this having been said, may I just say something that I, I hope people keep in mind. Um, the world was not at peace the day before Ukraine was invaded by Vladimir Putin's thugs. There were wars going on in other parts of the, of the world, in East Africa, in Central Africa, uh, in parts of the Central America. It's, it's, it, the, the rebel activity and the sort of narco-terrorist activity verges on war. So I hope people don't think that, that you know, suddenly the peace of the world has been disrupted by this one event. We've had a lot of war continuing in lots of parts of the world though it's relatively peaceful for historical, in historical uh, perspective. But what makes Ukraine different is, for Americans is not the ethnic group being oppressed because we should be sympathetic to all ethnic groups being oppressed. It's because Ukraine, while not a NATO ally, is next to allies with whom we are treaty bound to come to their yeah. defense. So unlike- yeah, let, me, let, me, let me just yeah. jump in real quick. Yeah, I, I appreciate you definitely giving us that history. That certainly yeah. um, helps the audience to get, get a baseline of what's going on. The, you know, the, 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 the current military buildup, you know, we saw the invasion that happened on uh, February the 24th. The, the, the actual military buildup from Russia started in March of 2021. You just mentioned NATO. Obviously, um, uh, uh, one of the other great fears of Putin is that he doesn't want to see Ukraine become a member of NATO. Yes. Uh, I mean, is it is it looking back on it over the last year or so, um, whenever Putin started to move his soldiers and military infrastructure, you know, up, up to the border of Ukraine, should NATO or, or America or, or European allies, should we have done more a year ago? I think we should have provided more weapons. Uh, I do not think rapidly, quickly admitting Ukraine into NATO was really a good idea. Uh, one of the precipitating, there were two precipitating events in my opinion. One of them was 
President Biden's decision to flee Afghanistan hmm. and, in, and flee in such a disorganized and disastrous way. I mean, I was against fleeing in any case, but at the very least, you have some sort of consultative process with allies and you do it more deliberately. He didn't do that. And Putin was watching and Putin thought, oh, well, so America's kind of lost its, its, lost its strength. I don't have to worry about them as much more. So he filed that away. Then there was additional conversation with Ukraine about potentially joining NATO. This happened last fall. And I think Putin decided at that point, look, if America's weak and running away from its responsibilities, and Ukraine is serious about going into NATO, I need to take action now to head that off. And so he started to bit the military build up last fall, went all the way into January and February. Many people said, well, he's just bluffing. Uh, he wasn't bluffing. Uh, now, this does not make him some cold, calculating, brilliant strategist. He, he is a fantasist. He, he has talked himself into a, a, a military action that has no bad basis in reality. But from his perspective, uh, Ukraine becoming a, becoming a part of NATO is a moral threat to his regime. Uh, not so much because he genuinely believes that Russia is going to be invaded from Ukraine. He's not that much of a madman. But he knows that if Ukraine is further integrated with the West and acts more like a Western, not just Western, acts more like a civilized nation, that that shows that people who are similar to Russians, Ukrainians, can live in a democratic republic, they can engage in the world trade, they can be part of the world system. That is not something Putin was willing to tolerate. You, you know, you mentioned a moment ago um, that, that P Putin is trying to position himself as if he can occupy Ukraine. And I actually saw a report in the New York Times last week that talked about how the Russian infrastructure, their military infrastructure is literally falling apart. They, they've yep. got tires that can't seem to even go across the terrain in, in exactly. Ukraine. Um, what does this reveal for America? I mean, is this like maybe does this help us to see what the current condition of the Russian military is actually in right now? I mean, they've got a convoy, a 45 mile convoy that's been stalled for for weeks. I mean, when you look at the planning and the strategy around the invasion, it hasn't been very effective at all. Um, right. What does this tell what does this tell the Pentagon right now? Well, it should tell them what they already should have known, which is that Russia it, Putin talks big, but the main capacity of the Russian military is to kill civilians. It, it is to destroy entire city blocks. They are capable of doing those things. Okay? Mm. They have rockets. They have artillery. They have actually their, their air force is proven to be a bit inadequate, but they absolutely have the ability to exercise indiscriminate force. What they don't have is anything like the capacity that, frankly, America has to go into a country as much as as much challenges as we had in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, much more sophisticated military, capable of engaging much longer uh, operations with supply. You know, part of what's happening with that convoy uh, coming in, uh, that, that long, long snarled traffic jam of a convoy coming in uh, towards Kiev is, you're right, they ran out of spare parts. They, they're, they're having trouble keeping up with their just getting petrol, getting, getting fuel to the trucks, the tires blow out and they don't have spare tires. But also the Ukrainians flooded. They went and broke up these reservoirs and dams and flooded large swaths of this territory. And it's so marshy that the Russian armor and mechanized infantry can't get through it. Um, th this does not mean that Putin is not a threat. doesn't mean the Russians are not a threat. It doesn't mean that they don't have overwhelming military force in some categories. But it means that 
Putin has been allowed to punch way above his real weight class. And I think that is partly a failure of deterrence on our part. We should have made it very clear that we were going to continue to sell lethal arms, significant lethal arms to Ukraine and arm Ukraine. It might have deterred him from doing this. Maybe not. He has, I think, lost his capacity to make rational decisions. But some serious attempt to determine the past, you can't keep drawing these lines. You know, we will not tolerate the occupation of Crimea or we will not tolerate the occupation of parts of Georgia, which happened in 2008, or we will not tolerate the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Remember that red line under former President Obama? Yes, we did. We tolerated all of those things. And that allowed Putin to think he could get away with this too. He shouldn't have. He should have realized this was different, but he didn't. He should have realized it would galvanize Europe to be more unified rather than to divide Europe, which is what he thought would happen, but he didn't. It would have been better to deter him from making this disastrous decision. You, you may mention to the, um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I, I actually hadn't thought about that, but as you made that comment, I reflected on it. And, and I do think you're right, John. I, I think that that probably sent the signal to Vladimir Putin and, and others around the world that that we just had no longer we were no longer interested in um, taking care of our allies and that we wanted to shrink from the world stage. Um, some would argue that that decision is actually rooted in the Trump administration, not necessarily the Biden administration. Not to get into too many part too much partisan politics with you, but at the end of the day, someone's going to say, "Hey, was this triggered by Trump or was it triggered by Biden or was it triggered by both?" In your opinion, it was triggered by both. That they. This is not something that will make either party happy with me, but you know I have a history of just saying what I think. Uh, I, I know Biden, that. <laughs> Biden and Trump had very similar policy on Afghanistan, which was to get out of it quickly. Trump got talked out of it repeatedly. He, he wanted to withdraw the end of last year, or I'm sorry, the end of 2020. He wanted to withdraw earlier than that. He kept being talked out of it by his, his military. Some of those same military officers advised Biden not to withdraw. He finally did withdraw. But this was a consistent position. And in fact, President Obama at one point wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan, as you may recall. They put, a, they put troops in, more troops in, but said, we're still going to pull them out, which gave the Taliban just a clear calendar. Well, just wait until you pull them out. My view about Afghanistan is really, it's a very complicated mess. But basically, unlike Iraq, where you could debate whether the, the original war was worth doing or whatever, with Afghanistan, there was no question that the ruling the, the ruling tyrants of Afghanistan, the Taliban, were complicit in a direct attack on American soil that killed thousands of Americans. Therefore, it was our task, our duty, our responsibility to invade Afghanistan, overthrow the Taliban, and make it clear they would never be allowed to rule Afghanistan again. Because they attacked us. The end. <laughs> and we could have continued a low-level presence in Afghanistan entirely. It would have been unfortunate that we had to do it, but we absolutely could have continued that role indefinitely to keep the Taliban out of control of, of the country, out of control of Kabul. We did not. And separate from the effects on Afghanistan and India and the rest of Central Asia, I think in this case, it emboldened Putin. It made Putin think, oh, well, America really is a paper tiger, and they're not going to take any, they and their allies are really not going to, they're going to huff and puff, but they're not going to blow my straw house down. And in fact, uh, we don't even need you know, NATO's wolves to come in and blow Putin's straw house down because the Ukrainians are blowing it down. But Putin misjudged the situation in part because Biden misjudged 
the international comp implications of running from Afghanistan. If you're just now joining us, um, I'm Algernon Cash, and you're locked in. The other voice that you hear is John Hood, who is an author, historian, conservative op-ed writer, and also president of the John William Pope Foundation. We are locked in, and we are talking about Russia invading Ukraine. Um, and as I always say, if you do not catch the extended version of this conversation on WTOB, you can always um, subscribe and download the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Pandora. You, you know, John, as, as, I, as I keep the conversation going, you know, as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine, we saw a reaction across the country. We even saw it here in North Carolina. People started to call for the boycotting of, of, of Russian products. Um, I actually had to make a video and clarify that Smirnoff vodka is not made in Russia. Um, it's actually made in Illinois, and it's an American company. It just happened to be named after Vladimir um, Smirnoff. But, but, but one place I did not hear about any boycotts was Russian energy. And, you know, Russia accounts for somewhere around 10% of the world's oil, um, somewhere around a third of, of Europe's natural gas. Um, so when you look at the conflict that's going on in Ukraine, it, it, it does put us in a precarious position when we talk about energy, um, which, you know, I've always been on record saying here in our country, we got to be more energy secure. I'm not sure we'll ever get to energy independence. I know that's something we like to talk about, but I think the world is so globally intertwined when it yep. comes to energy. But we can be more secure as, as a country. Um, it, does this sort of put the world on notice that, that we've got to be thinking more strategically about the, the world's energy supply? Here, here's my view about this. This I, I don't particular I don't personally view this as controversial, but I know that this is not necessarily in keeping with a lot of what you hear and see on, on in the media right now. But oil oil markets in particular, as you just alluded to, Algernon, there it's a world market for oil. And if you boycott, if one country, if the United States said we're not going to buy any Russian oil, it wouldn't make any difference. To, at all to Russia, that um, uh, they are selling their oil. I mean, oil is not exactly interchangeable. There are some differences in grade, but basically um, Russia makes a lot of money when the price is high. They make less money when the price is low, depending on how much volume they sell. And so if one country, even the United States, a large market says, we're not gonna buy Russian oil. Well, we're, we're, not, we're still gonna buy oil. We're either gonna drill it or we're gonna buy it from other suppliers. And a country like China, you know, the consumers in China want oil, so they'll just buy more Russian oil. They'll buy less oil from the Middle East or from maybe from a, a Canadian or U.S. producer. And so my view is if you want to break the power of uh, autocrats who control oil reserves like Vladimir Putin or others, the thing to do is to make it easier to drill, have mm. more people putting more, more supply into the world marketplace and reduce their, their revenue flow. Now, it also reduces the revenue flow of you know, countries that may be friendly to us who are also oil-dependent countries. But that's my view. I don't think that a boycott of Russian oil, as attractive as that sounds, I don't think it's a meaningful step. Uh, now, if the entire world boycotted oil, uh, Russian oil, or almost the whole world, you know, if you had Europe, all, all of Europe, and China, and India, and North America, you know, if we were all boycotting Russian oil, that would make it hard for Russia. They, there wouldn't be enough customers left. But I don't see that. I think India and China, at least, will continue to buy oil uh, on the market, not caring where it comes from, meaning they'll buy Russian oil. And so I just don't think that's a viable strategy. And that's different from uh, why aren't we uh, uh, drilling? You know, why are we allowing the price 
prices soaring, that should be a signal to all producers of marginal wells to drill, all, all people who haven't yet explored in areas that might be promising to go ahead and explore. All of that should be uh, driven by the market process. Prices are high, people, it's more supply is going to come in unless the government stops it. And we do have restrictions. We have impediments. The Biden administration has not been friendly to drilling, and that needs to change. But to make that change, which I think you and I would agree with, uh, is not going to have a short-term effect on what is going on in Ukraine. It just, it just takes too long for that to kick in. That's a longer-term way to kind of reduce the power of, of oligarchs that control oil supplies like Vladimir Putin. But in the short run, this is really more about military assistance and diplomatic isolation and cutting off Russia from the rest of the world economically, not so much about Russia's exports, but about its imports and about its connection to the financial system. That's something that would put a lot of pressure on the oligarchs that surround Putin, that make his sort of mafia state work. And they'll either have severe pain or they'll do something to him. And either way, we should be happy. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to remind people, I mean, the, the actual oil that's being refined right now today for gasoline was bought a year ago. Um, yeah. You know, so, uh, I mean, to, to be able to disrupt that market is very, very difficult. It's a long um, and, as I, and as I said before, I, I think people that try to champion this idea of energy independence, I mean, it, the, unfortunately, the, the market just doesn't work that way. But we should be trying to work to be energy secure. Um, and to John's point, we should be exploring and developing as much of our own domestic energy resources as possible. Um, so that one, when you have a country like Russia that that um, gets engaged in this kind of conflict, we're prepared, um, not only prepared for ourselves, but also prepared for our allies um, so that we can also be a good ally. And, and so for all of you that are listening, that was pouring out the vodka and talking about um, boycotting Russian products, um, what you could be doing in a better use of your time and your energy would be to contact your congressman um, or your congresswoman and, and make sure that we get folks elected that actually want to um, explore and develop more domestic energy resources. That would put us on a path to being more energy secure, and that would be a more effective use of your actual advocacy time. You know, John, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. I got to work in the one last question that, that seems to be um, on everybody's mind. You heard me say at the outset, this is the largest invasion in Europe since World War II. Um, the president of Ukraine is calling on America to get involved militarily, as well as his European allies. Um, some are warning, warning that we could be on the verge of World War III. You're the historian. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts? I mean, is, are we moving in that direction? Um, I hope not, because uh, world wars are so, you know, wars at that scale are so destructive. You have to be very clear about what your goals are. For example, I hear lots of loose talk about uh, putting NATO and American uh, air forces into the Ukrainian airspace and denying basically the no-fly zone idea. I understand the motivation behind it. Um, that is probably not the right choice to make right now. Uh, and it's understandable why public officials in both parties are hesitant to embrace that idea. Uh, of course, the Ukrainians want that. I don't blame them. Uh, but our first and foremost responsibility is to ensure there are corridors through which military and humanitarian assistance can flow into Ukraine. And as soon as any Russian forces get close to the border of Poland or, or uh, uh, Slovakia, 
or Hungary or Moldova or so, we ought to be very, well, Moldova's not a NATO ally, but the others are very clear. We are treaty bound to defend their territory. And this includes things like if the Russians blast into Western Ukraine and take down you know, energy networks or information networks or have water, nuclear plants, Okay, which so happened last week become a yeah, if there becomes a physical threat to our treaty partners, then yes, military action by the United States has to be on the table. We are duty bound to do that. We should do that. But uh, in the meantime, we should be arming Ukraine and isolating Russia and hoping that there's either some internal logic within the, the mafia state that is Russia today that takes out the Don when he is clearly outlived his usefulness, or that Putin himself will have some sort of return to reality, you know, some semblance of reality, and figure out a graceful exit. That's just, yeah. that's just the reality of the situation. Um, Ukraine is not going to be conquered and occupied and turned into a Russian province. It's just not going to happen. We, you, know, you and I know that. The Ukrainians know that. Putin does not yet understand that, I guess, but he, he needs to be made to understand that. Yeah, and to my audience, I, I, I mean, I constantly, constantly, every election cycle, I talk about why it's so important that we're, we're paying close attention to these issues, not just domestic issues and what's happening in your own backyard, but you need to take a moment to understand all these foreign policy issues that are out there, because all these things have a huge impact on our day-to-day -day life right here in America. So what it's, what's happening in Ukraine can affect your day-to-day -day life. And it's so critically important that we have the right elected officials in place all the way from the White House, all the way down, making the right decisions when we face these kind of issues. And so to my audience, if you have not taken time um, to study what's going on in Ukraine, just, just start with Wikipedia. That, that's, the, that's the easiest place to start. It's already right there and, and tightly packed for you. But I would strongly encourage you to go read um, about what John is talking about, some of the history associated um, with Putin's decision to invade that country, because um, certainly it could have a huge, huge impact on what's happening right here in America. John, I'm running out of time as I get ready to wrap up, man. Um, real quick, plug your book. I see the I see the picture back there behind you. <laughs> yeah, well, I did take make a turn from writing serious history books a couple of years ago to writing historical fantasy novels set in early America. So the first book is called Mountain Folk, which is already out. That happens primarily set during the Revolutionary War in North Carolina, uh, to some extent. And then the second book, which comes out in April, is called Forest Folk, and that takes the story up into the War of 1812. It is fun, and there's adventure and fantasy creatures and epic battles, but there's also, I hope, a lot of history in there for people who may not know a whole lot about the American Revolution or the War of 1812. I think this will maybe fill in some blanks for you. Well, I encourage my audience to go check it out. And um, it also just search John Hood online. He, John writes a lot for Carolina Journal, a whole bunch of publications across the state. Um, I try to read everything I can get my hands on. He's a really good author. You can follow him on Facebook and you can obviously buy the book online. Um, that's available. On, go to his website. Don't, we don't want to give any extra money to Amazon. Go check it out at the website. And to my audience, I always appreciate you locking in. The Locked In Show does broadcast every Sunday morning on WTOB. Thank you for locking in there. But if you happen to miss it, you can also subscribe and download the podcast on um, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, you name it, Apple, wherever you like to get your favorite podcast, you can lock in with me there. And as always, until next time, y'all stay locked in. Big 
executive producer of the Locked In Podcast is Algernon Cash for WCG. The associate producer is Tim Beeman for Such and Such Media. The views and opinions in this podcast are solely those of the contributors and are not necessarily those of our distributors or hosting company. This podcast is copyrighted and cannot be reproduced without express written consent of WGC.